EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Oya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is October 14th, and my colleague Toria Reini and I talked to Ambassador Vasco Garcevic. Ambassador Garcevic is a professor of the practice of diplomacy and international relations at BU Party School of Global Studies. My name is Vesko Garcevic. Uh, I'm here now Professor of the Practice of International Relations at the uh, Paris School of Global Studies. Um, I have spent uh, 26 years working in diplomacy as a career diplomat. Uh, I joined diplomatic service back you know, in early 90s at the time in Yugoslavia. I witnessed breakup of my country, a bloody war on its territory. I, without moving anywhere, actually, just curiosity, I served several countries. Yugoslavia, a big one, a smaller one, then a country called Serbia Montenegro and Montenegro. I've been in many, situa- in many situations which are not regular for diplomats, uh, and I served as ambassador of Serbia Montenegro and Montenegro. Uh, I had been posted in Brussels, uh, where I served for Montenegro in NATO. But before that, I had been um, a political director of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in my country, in charge of Euro- European and, uh, among others, European integration uh, and the EU, including. So, uh, among others, um, the EU, enlargement of the EU, and uh, um, European history, uh, uh, security structure of, EU, of Europe is uh, definitely in my focus. Great. Um, so my first question, what kind of future is emerging now in, in Europe? Oh, question is difficult. Uh, we have to see this from, you know, we can pose, pose four different questions. And given answers to those questions, we come, I would say, at least uh, closer, a bit closer to uh, better understanding what Europe may be in the future, or the EU may be. First, when it comes to the EU, uh, where the boundaries of the EU uh, should be, uh, which countries are to be included in, uh, uh, in the EU, which countries in Europe de- de- today have uh, clear, uh, uh, undisputable uh, EU future, the EU perspective. The second is what to do with uh, Turkey. Um, as you know, Turkey has been waiting for the EU membership uh, for decades now. Then, relation between the EU and Russia. And finally, but um, maybe not as acute as the first three ones, is the relation between EU and US. Uh, when you put those questions on the table and you see how, uh, and you try to give answers to them, then you will find out and then you will come to, uh, let's say, something which will at least give you better understanding of the EU. Uh, boundaries. You know, uh, for the EU, uh, it's a problem that at this moment they didn't uh, clearly define uh, which the, uh, countries in Europe have uh, the EU perspective, 
the EU perspective is given to countries from Western Balkans and uh, in the so-called Thessaloniki agenda. But when it comes to countries that belong to so-called um, Eastern Partnership, uh, you know, this is not so clear. And you have uh, here two uh, sides stories. One coming from the EU, where the EU officials will give you answers that there is no such perspective for them. Uh, the, the tool is there, devised and ready for uh, facilitating cooperation between the EU and those countries. On, other, on the other hand, those countries and their leaders would like to have something like a clear perspective and would like to know uh, when, if uh, and how they can become eligible to join the EU. This, uh, you know, is very important because of a uh, uh, concept of deepening, which was uh, dominant in the EU in the recent past. You know, the EU, after the last round of enlargement, the big one, uh, not including Croatia and, and, and Bulgaria and Romania, but before that. Then uh, the EU decided that uh, EU needs some time for uh, to digest those new countries, to absorb differences, diversities, and to therefore to put emphasis on deepening. And deepening was a process which was led and promoted by Germany and France particularly, and the countries aligned with them, like uh, Benelux countries or some Scandinavian uh, members of the EU, uh, Denmark included. But there were countries who um, didn't want to see uh, deepening as such at this very moment, uh, before knowing where boundaries are and who have chance to become the EU member. Uh, the UK was one of them. They actually, UK didn't want to see deepening at all uh, because it was not, um, you know, high on uh, its uh, foreign policy agenda. But nevertheless, made a point that uh, first, let's first uh, finish job with enlargement. Deepening was uh, uh, promoted, particularly by France and and Germany, uh, after the last round of enlargement, the big one. Uh, uh, which took place in 2006. They wanted to have uh, Europe um, uh, more powerful, uh, better organized and more uni uh, united. But on the other hand, uh, countries, as I mentioned, as, such as U uh, UK, um, objected that, uh, objected that uh, point of view, uh, po you know, stressing that uh, for the EU is most important at this moment, at that moment, to define where boundaries are and who have a perspective to become the EU member, what to do with the Eastern Partnership, what to do with countries from the Balkans, and then when have all members in, when have all uh, family members uh, in, then we can speak about how we will recreate uh, our family. So uh, this was uh, from that point of view. Um, underlying, let's say, not maybe not so visible uh, uh, dispute between two schools, two schools of thought. Uh, we, as a result, among others of that, we have uh, Brexit, and now we we we, we are in situation to reconsider, uh, uh, to re uh, to revise uh, the concept of the EU. Uh, I'm not. Coming from, I don't come from the EU member, but my country is aspiring to become the EU member and I would say is one of few that has a clear perspective 
to become the EU member. So, uh, unlike others uh, who are knocking on the door or in the, uh, in the waiting room, we are at least in a pipeline. And so we go there. Uh, the EU, uh, we may dream what the EU should be, or we, we can be realistic when we discuss the EU future. From the realistic point of view, I'm very prone personally to think that the EU which is functional and the EU that can be like a, uh, effective is the EU that will be designed to meet the different interests existing there. Uh, interests of the so-called the core EU countries, Germany, France, Italy, um, Benelux countries and others. So something which floating in the air for some time, but is not publicly mentioned, but yes, behind the closed door. I don't know whether you heard for this, uh, for heard for uh, statement of Italian Minister of Foreign Affairs recently that EU should be reorganized to be like a two or three speed EU, which means that you can have like a car country, core group, um, fully integrated, some kind of almost uh, federation. Uh, this can be like a uh, European Union that uh, Germany would like to see. Then, the second round of countries that are part of the EU, but are not as uh, you know so much integrated in. Uh, they can have like a they can share currency, but they don't necessarily share like a um, you know budgetary policy or tax policy or uh, the, the free free flow of people and goods are guaranteed for all of them. But uh, the, step, uh, the the level of integration is different. And finally, you you may have the third let's say outer circle of countries still the EU members that will be part of this and part of the common foreign and security policy. But when it comes to uh, economic integration or integration in terms of, uh, you know, standards in, uh, in spheres like a rule of law, judiciary, you know, not fully there, then they can be some part of this, but uh, and be considered as the EU members, but not fully, um, uh, as I said, integrating in what the core group has as uh, the EU. So that may be solution. We can only discuss this. That may be a solution. And that solution, to come to the second question, may include Turkey. Because Turkey is a problem for the EU. Uh, for, for at least uh, one very influential group of countries within the EU. So they have problem with it. They have problem to integrate it fully. And uh, on the other hand, uh, there are countries that would like to see Turkey there because they consider Turkey as a bridge between Europe and the Middle East. And they can see, they, they think that the, Euro the European, European values can be safeguarded better if they be have uh, Turkey in rather than having Turkey out. Because Turkey can turn to something else. Uh, it's not only that you know, we, we are at the market of ideas and values. And uh, you, you, you know, you can imagine one day that they, they can shift to something else, not necessarily be linked to the EU. So, uh, in the concept of several, let's say, layers or uh, uh, this uh, two, three speed, uh, um, the EU of two, three speed, then we can imagine that at certain, um, you know, at a certain level integration, we can imagine Turkey being part of it. How do you see that though uh, after the coup? 
after after what happened in July and now you're, we are seeing that. You are, we, first of all, we, we are now in the process, which I is mean, called, the, you know, like a phony, you know, you know, phony war. Uh, the phony war was the war between, uh, uh, this was a period between 1939 and 41 in Europe when the UK and France declared war against Germany, but actually nothing was happening. You know, this is, I, I'm really looking like this. We have like an open uh, book there. We have a question, we have an issue. The issue which is, uh, you know, uh, to, should be addressed as soon as possible. But we have, like, a real, we see, we, we witness a reluctance from both sides. They don't know what to do. They don't actually, they are afraid of or scared of making mistakes uh, right now. Uh, UK would like to go along that line and to leave the EU, but at the same time to keep their interests uh, alive within the EU. The EU, you know, it's been a pendulum going on from one to another side. You know, at one moment they already they behave like a frustrated, uh, you know, partner <laughs> left alone. Uh, on the other hand, they are more rational. They're trying to, you know, see this, uh, uh, you know, rationally to discuss, to sit at the table and discuss with uh, uh, Britons what we can do together in order to iron up uh, like a damage done by, by Brexit. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen at the end of the day. Uh, I'm sure that the uh, uh, UK uh, will be leaving, this, this uh, it goes without saying, but the process will last longer than we expect. I think it will take uh, a minimum three up to five years until this process is completely uh, accomplished. Three and five years is uh, um, a long period, a relatively long period. We don't know what's going to happen within the UK, you know, uh, that uh, Scotland would like to keep uh, actually its membership, its membership. Uh, within the EU. They don't want to leave the EU. So this may open up issue of uh, another referendum. And that referendum uh, in Scotland, I think, I'm sure, I can bet on it, will be winning for those advocating independence. Because now they have a really strong uh, case in their hands. And this case works in their favor. So uh, this is uh, really damaging for the EU. Damaging for its reputation damaging for its position in the world, in the global affairs, damaging with um, um, its um, you know, relation with the, with, uh, with the strategic partner called the US, and damaging for its relation uh, with Russia, which is assertive, powerful right now, and uh, uh, how to say, dominating European affairs. And Europe is continuously in, with, uh, in withdrawal not knowing what to do with Russia, actually, either to uh, give certain compensation in order to strike deal or to, uh, you know, build muscles sh uh, showing, you know, that we are really powerful. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, Ukraine is one of the uh, like most visible examples, but one less visible, uh, I call it, the less visible battleground is Balkans, because Balkans is not fully integrated there, I come from that part where I've witnessed, I've, uh, we've been witnessing this for years now. Russia is getting more and more active there, and more and more engaged. Uh, the EU cannot offer anything attractive enough. Actually, they have, you, you, the EU has really strong and attractive tool. This is membership. But they are reluctant to use it because of so-called uh, uh, enlargement fatigue. And they don't use it to attract political elites in the Balkans or like in Ukraine to turn really towards the EU and to uh, like, uh, 
more enthusiastic, more enthusiastically uh, use what they have at their disposal, which means uh, reforms um, and and democratization. Uh, there, you know, those countries cannot go through democratic transition without help of the EU and US, but primarily without help of the EU. And uh, I think that the EU, because of uh, internal, let's say, problems and uh, inward-looking uh, approach, now doesn't use properly uh, its uh, powerful, so let's say, soft attractiveness to, uh, you know, um, and doesn't weaponize this uh, in order to attract, to embrace countries like, as I said, uh, like uh, like like Ukraine, first of all, then uh, this will help the EU to be, uh, let's say, more mm, mm, or stronger uh, in in negotiation with Russia, stronger in uh, its um, posture towards China. So we are like a, at a watershed uh, and. Uh, uh, I don't know what's gonna happen with the EU. I would like. I only can see that. What I can see that if you, the EU, is not uh, reconstructed uh, um, uh, in, a, in next like a few years, then the EU will will will, will be facing even more problems than the, it is facing right now because the red line is there. This is what how I see you know. That's a very interesting perspective in terms yeah. of reconstructing, reconstructing yeah. the European Union, yeah. and probably one of one of the solutions was what the Italy's ministry minister yeah. of foreign affairs proposed. Yeah. Or do you see any other form of solution, or no. or let's say structure that would work? Uh, to remodel the EU. No, uh, to remodel the EU, uh, I, I can say what I would like to see, but uh, yes, what I would like to see is one that, step. But I'm saying now as a diplomat, <laughs> former diplomat, because we 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 work in operate in a real world, that's not in a perfect world. Well, in a perfect world, I would like to see Europe united and organized in a, almost like a, a federation of uh, European states. This is the dream that drives uh, 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 all of us in Europe. This is Europe that I would like to see. Europe competent, uh, uh, competent to and um, uh, uh, competent to be, uh, you know, um, uh, as equal as like a China and Far East countries um, uh, into this uh, world, uh, economically competent uh, to be uh, up to what people uh, living in Europe expect the EU to be, uh, to be less bureaucratic, more efficient, uh, and to be not, let's say. Uh, when sometimes is uh, sometimes is seen by citizens as over organized, uh, over bureaucratic, uh, and uh, going into really some things that uh, you know uh, it's not necessary to have this or uh, you know formulated in the European laws and orders. So, but uh, that Europe is Europe of our dreams. It doesn't necessarily include UK as a full member of the EU, but UK somehow, um, how to say, culturally, politically, strategically linked to the EU. It includes also countries which are now outside of the EU, but also somehow, um, um, uh, at least from our perspective, from us living in the EU, seen as a part of like a broader 
uh, the EU picture, like uh, Norway, like Iceland, even including Turkey, which I personally think that Turkey must be in, because without Turkey we have not this picture completed. Something which is called Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, Atlantic is here and the uh, uh, European area is there. Finally, we come, you know, um, we come, uh, I don't know what to say about uh, Russia, whether Russia can be part of this story or not. This is another, this is another issue. Uh, I don't think that Russia can be part of this. Uh, not because I think that uh, Russia is not capable to do so. Actually, if they want, they can do this. I think that they come from different worlds, but uh, even there I see maybe uh, better uh, space for better cooperation and better understanding between two big partners, the EU and Russia. But the third question is what we can do with so-called buffer zone. Buffer zone are countries uh, like Ukraine, Moldova, vulnerable ones, vulnerable ones, exposed to influence of both sides. Uh, how and, and how the EU can work with them, what the EU can propose, what is fair deal, but the deal that will make a clear cut and will uh, set expectations as like a proper level, uh, not giving like a, a chance for ambiguity or for different interpretation. The same what, what we are having right now and the different how, as I ex ex just explained that people and citizens from those countries li uh, see uh, uh, Eastern uh, partnership through different glasses than uh, people from, from Brussels. You know, they don't, they speak the same stuff, but they see this stuff different. So this is uh, Europe of my dreams, and I believe that that Europe, uh, at the end of the day, uh, will come to being. But um, let's see, let's see. How would you? Realistically, <laughs> I'm <laughs> honestly uh, dreams are dreams. But realistically, I think first uh, Europe, the EU needs to survive difficult times. To survive difficult times, you need to do what you must do. It's not anymore about dreams, about how you have to go through this and to uh, to you know, to reach the point when you, let's say, on the other side of the river and to walk out from the river saying, now finally I'm there, I can now remodel my model. But until this point comes, uh, I think that they need to do something immediately. How would you assess a citizen's participation in rebuilding this EU that you? Would oh, build? that's a good question. That's a good question. That question is really uh, now, uh, you know, omnipresent in so-called old Europe, because citizens. I, I lived in in Brussels and I traveled a lot. I've I've been I've been also a bilateral ambassador to Netherlands and to Belgium and to Luxembourg. And I can share with you the citizens of uh, those countries, those core countries, countries who were, uh, you know, founding fathers of the EU. They are very, they are frustrated with bar uh, this, which, uh, the, 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 something that they consider, uh, 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 you know, over, over bureaucrat structure of the EU. And they see the EU, which is bureaucrat sitting in Brussels, running the business for the EU, uh, bureaucrats uh, uh, working in the European, Com European Commission or European Council as being detached from reality, being detached from, from citizens. You know, they say, for I will give you a simple example. At the time of, of uh, financial crisis, where those countries, member states, 
uh, were uh, forced to introduce really unpopular measures, uh, cutting budgets, cutting social givings. Um, you you know those are all countries of, so, of social wealth, you know in terms of uh, uh, you know uh, welfare system they are really like a socialist countries they they, they were really uh, they were uh, uh, forced to do some unpopular uh, measures uh, taking risk for not being voting against those government taking risk not uh, being uh, voting at the elections for what they uh, had to do at the same time at the same time those member states were receiving a request from bureaucrats in Brussels to, you know, <laughs> to extend their budgets and, uh, uh, to, for more contribution uh, uh, of member states into something which is called common, the, the EU common budget. You know, you can imagine, they drove them crazy. And you see now, you know, sitting in Brussels, you at one day, you talk to people from uh, a European Commission and they hear one story because they will try to expand, they would like to pump, um, the pumping money into some like a projects here and there. And you have, uh, you, you turn to um, the same people sitting in Brussels, but sitting in Belgian government or sitting in The Hague in, uh, in Dutch government, and they have different story and they were complaining about this. This is something which I say that, uh, that burning issue of the EU, burning issue. When I say restructuring, I don't think only restructuring in those like a global terms. This restructuring must start with the really small things you are doing at home uh, in order to cut spending here and there and to make to do streamlining and to make your 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 structure functioning better you know they are really uh, they are really um, uh, they are frustrated uh, something which is uh, to come back to your question something which is considered to be uh, you know introduced by uh, the eu to make you closer to uh, citizens of europe is uh, uh, european parliament and voting for MPs in European Parliament, but and finally we have direct voting uh, for uh, MPs in European Parliament. Uh, but uh, uh, I would say that people didn't buy yet this completely because um, uh, when the, the last elections took place, it was 2014. Turnout was really small. You say like less than 40 percent in, in in general speaking. Average forty percent in the EU member states, and you can imagine that new members get better turnout than the old ones because they still believe that the EU can do something for them, but the old ones they have problem with uh, with the new EU. I would say it is after it takes time for each of them to accommodate. So there are a lot of sentiments around around this refugee issue. How do you see how? How shall the European Union address this issue? This issue is uh, directly related to what uh, just uh, related to the financial crisis and crisis of the EU. Uh, financial crisis put uh, you know on a challenge uh, very uh, foundation of the EU. You know when one was uh, and I will come back to what you asked when uh, one was uh, speaking about the EU or uh, uh, assessing the EU pluses and minuses like a 10 years ago 
I would say, uh, everyone would say that um, uh, common foreign policy or common um, uh, security policy was not the strongest point of the EU because countries, member states, would like, wanted to have and to keep a uh, close eye on uh, foreign policy and security policy, didn't want to delegate this to the European Commission. But when it comes to finance and and economy, this was the this was considered by outside world as the strongest part of the EU. But even that was put under question by financial crisis. And financial crisis actually disclosed how um, big differences exist between uh, between different between member states. That uh, to come to uh, you, therefore, member states turn to be and became had become more nationalistic, uh, more national oriented, more state uh, interest driven, rather than uh, uh, seeing a European Union as a collective um, uh, body um, uh, organism that uh, should act and think and uh, perform at the global scene as a collective joint body of all of them. To come back to what you said, you know, we, 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 uh, we are witnessing, uh, you know, how right-wing parties, nationalist parties are gaining strength in, in Europe everywhere. In a well-established democracies like uh, Netherlands or Germany or, you know, France, you know, uh, Marie Le Pen, you know, she's doing so well that I'm sure that at the elections they would be so, they would win like a 40%. Minimum. That was a party that hardly could take like a, a five, six percent only a few years ago. So something is happening, and with the influx of refugees and migrants, you know, this is like a fueling uh, oil on fire. This is you know, they don't want to see. But countries which have uh, right-wing uh, uh, governments like uh, Poland, um, Hungary, uh, and few others, they are so much obsessed with uh, with refugees and they don't want to see them there they would like to protect uh, um, purity of their nations purity of their states because or in some cases they ask only uh, to and they are already willing to accept refugees coming from Middle East only those who are uh, Christians they don't want to see because they would like to uh, don't want to this balance ethnic balance within the countries to be changed but figures speak different you know, um, France, which is considered to have most problems, and is the weakest problem, the, the, the soft belly of Europe, uh, and has, it's considered to have uh, biggest problems with, with, uh, with people coming from Middle East and Muslims. Uh, do you know how many Muslims live in France? 7%. They consider 7% of, 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 uh, of uh, French citizens, French people uh, living in France. So, uh, in other countries, it's less than 2% sometimes less than 1%. So if you are, if you are like, uh, obsessed with, uh, with uh, uh, refugees and you're uh, juggling with figures, uh, it is like a, a typical propaganda. But it speaks about, I would say, fear, uh, feeling of, uh, like I say, anxiety, feeling of discomfort uh, in Europe these days. And this also influences uh, uh, policy of the EU. Um, therefore, you know, dream is one, uh, reality is, is one other thing, you know. But at the end of the day, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I think that this will 
uh, have a, a happy end. Uh, let's be let's sound more optimistic at the end. But it will take some time. It will take some time. I have uh, one last question. Yeah. So it sounds a little bit like the root of some of these crises, whether that's the refugee crisis or economic downfalls, come from this sort of egocentric viewpoint of different EU member states. Mm. What would you say to the EU community to get them to start thinking more ecocentrically? Yeah, uh, they were not so egocentric in the 90s. They were, they were living uh, good times in the 90s. After the fall of the, war, of the Berlin Wall, uh, Europe was living a dream. It uh, was a dream of uh, unity, internal unity and harmony between uh, Europe, uh, European nations. And really, it, it was, it was, you know, <laughs> at that time, if you were asked me, would you, if you had asked me the same kind of questions, like uh, just 15 years ago, I would have given you completely different answers. You know, there was a time of uh, unity, of harmony, um, and the, this, uh, the, the, there was no space for egocentrism those days. They thought that Europe would survive, you know, I did that the model of the European Union is the model that can be applied and can be seen everywhere. But there is one more thing to, to, uh, to be said here. You know, why uh, others, others uh, don't copy that model? Uh, actually, um, uh, uh, people would like to live in Europe because Europe is considered to be safe, secure, uh, fine for living, that you can enjoy good system there, that, that everything is paid, that the social system is working well, health uh, care insurance is uh, working well, and everything. but it's so much, uh, as I said, uh, uh, bureau, uh, bureaucratic that it's difficult to, cop uh, to, to, to copy. Um, now, some say that uh, this system uh, was uh, designed to serve uh, only in, in good days. You know, when we have bad days, when we have uh, you know good weather, that everything works well. When you have bad weather outside, then you have to be prepared for that. But they were uh, the system was not made to go through bad weather. And what's happening in Europe? Uh, you have to understand history of Europe. History of Europe is Europe history of uh, egocentric, small, small in terms of if you see from the uh, US perspective or Chinese perspective, uh, small state, small state, but very egocentric. So uh, when you end uh, enlargement and unification is actually accident uh, in European history. It's not the rule, it's accident. And we see something working well, relatively well, as an exception, not as a rule. And when you have problem, like let us speak about people, when we are together and we have our team and team is working well and problem until problem appears and then every one of us if we didn't build up uh, our uh, team spirit well uh, then we turn to what we are we turn to ourselves we try to find out solution by ourselves we don't turn to team anymore because we don't believe we don't trust team spirit we don't trust team this is what's going on actually don't we didn't reach that point. Hopefully, we will never reach in the EU that point. But this is what is happening right now. Reconsidering each and everything, uh, uh, what the EU is. Uh, countries, and there are two perspectives. Old countries, old countries, core member states. They have their perspective. They would like to keep Europe as it is. They are, you know, scared of look at those guys from Eastern Europe because they will spoil those standards. You know, look at them what they do because we have so high standards when it comes to like uh, education, when it comes to uh, judiciary, when it comes to rule of law. You know, 
those don't have do and this is really but we 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 let them come in and we let them be part of us did, did we make mistake some are gonna say yes we did and we therefore we we cannot afford making mistake again therefore we would like to be cautious no enlargement anymore no giving uh, you know uh, promises that we cannot deliver no refugees anymore Keep us, uh, uh, you know, we would like to be alone for a time, for time being, and we would like to like uh, um, um, clean up our house. And how we're gonna clean up our house? It's difficult to answer because everyone has his own idea, how her own idea, how to clean up this house. This is where the EU is now cleaning up the house, and where my country is waiting in a waiting room to come in and to become a new member. And we are really, how to say, um, we are puzzled because we don't know what the rules will be. No one knows what the rules will be. Uh, for us, maybe we know because we are already in the rule. We are halfway through. Uh, we open up uh, uh, accession negotiation talks and no one can stop us anymore because you are on the track and you're, you go there. So, but others who didn't, who didn't reach that point, they are still even, you know, a couple of uh, steps behind us and they, they have problem even to make those couple of steps to become, uh, to, to come to the point where we are now. So, because they don't want them there, they keep them on hold. Uh, uh, simply, uh, it is like a, the new Euro, uh, the, the old new European story new. And therefore, if we want to understand uh, Europe of today, uh, try to read and to understand Europe of the 19th century, uh, late 19th century, Europe of that time, and the role of Germany, and the role of France, and uh, how they forged their relation with Russia, how UK um, uh, treated Russia, why uh, Russia and UK for centuries had the problems and never established good relations. Why Germany, um, how to say, Germany is, has a formula for Russia. Germany has a formula. Germany knows how to deal with Russia. France is somewhere between. Poland and others, Poland, Baltic states, they are, you know, um, um, what to say, they have their history with Russia and therefore I understand them. Uh, uh, they are so, so much obsessed with Russia and Russian threat. Okay, because of their history with Russia. So this is Europe. This is Europe. Many small states, many interested game, and uh, uh, many interested stake, and European Union willing to accommodate all of them, whether it is capable or not. Let's see. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.